Let's open with prayer. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and particularly the preaching of your word. That all that I say that is faithful to you, that it would be remembered, that it would be, that it would land with power, not because I am a powerful man, but because your Holy Spirit is a powerful God. He is a powerful God. So help us now. Conform us into your image during this time. Uh, Stoke our affections. Fill our minds. And bring life to limp limbs that we might serve, glorify, and worship you in all that we do because of these words from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The fathers of Dedan was, was Asherim and Latushim and Lemuim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Henak, Abidam, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittite there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer-lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Midsam. Midsem, Duma, Masa, Haidad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their sons, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. He settled from Havilah to Shur which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, 
Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Um, one of the beauties of expositional preaching and the difficulties of expositional preaching is that you find there are a lot of chapters between everyone's favorite chapters. And it would be easy to just preach the highlight reel all the time of what's in the Scriptures. But God has given us, He's given us genealogies, more than one here. He's given us birth records and ages, location names, um, a tussle between brothers, favoritism amongst parents. And so, um, but it's astounding sometimes how a chunk of the Old Testament that we don't see as very critical in our own thinking, in our own conception of God and who He is and how He he works in the world, and then we see how the New Testament actually goes, this is a big deal. This is not a small thing that is going on. And so, um, I'm going to try to quickly go through this text expositionally and kind of point some things out so that the text is clear to you, but then I I don't want to preach everything that's there, but I want to take this particular idea When God says, two nations are within your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And I want us to look at how Paul uses that in Romans 9, because we see here God's purpose of election, a doctrine that uh, the world does not just hate that uh, Christians believe, but even within Christian circles. It's not a doctrine that is usually even always cordially discussed. It is one that gets people sometimes angry. But, beloved, I believe that God's providence in election um, ought to be a great comfort to believers. It ought to be a great comfort to believers, and that'll be the main point, that the ones for whom Jesus died and calls and works the Spirit in so that they come to Him by faith. 
They are not lost, and they are truly saved by grace, not because of anything they did. There's a lot of other things here in this text that I want us to go through quickly, but I, I want us to highlight and camp in Romans 9. So as we, as we go to the beginning, we see that um, Abraham's family is a bit of a mess. This is good news um, because you know, um, everyone whose family isn't a bit of a mess, you can raise your hand. And this sermon's just, it's not for you. But this is good news. It is good news because it shows us, it highlights for us that God can use imperfect, messy families. One of the first things going on is this issue with Keturah. Now, Sarah has died. He has the the right to remarry after um, Sarah has died. And so he takes a wife named Keturah, and she bears him a a number of sons. I'm not quite sure what that would have been teaching Abraham in his later life. He, he waits so long with Sarah and then just has one, and that's where the promise is. And then sometimes we, we scratch our heads at the way God does things, but sometimes it seems as though the path that God wants us to go down is the harder of the paths. That sometimes the path God calls us to go down, He actively in His providence makes that the difficult path. The path that tests us and the path that challenges us and the path that tempts us. But God in His providence delights to do that. And as, as you read Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Judges, beloved, it, God's people never do well when just all the blessings fall from heaven. One of God's big problems with us is that when he makes things easy, we forget him. And so we see, we, I don't know what Abraham's being taught, but going to verse 6, it says, to the sons of his concubines, boy, did I did a word study on that this week. Concubines are complicated. Now, Keturah has been called his wife, and so some people might say here, Abraham not only had Keturah, but maybe he had many concubines, like Abraham and the others, and that is certainly within the realm of possibility. But the text does not necessitate this. This is wives other than his first and primary wife, that um, the concubine, it, it is a sort of marital relationship, but the children of that relationship do not have the same legal provisions. And actually, for a wealthy man who is a head of household, whose wife has died, there were actually probably many women that desired to have this status with Abraham. And he goes, it it might have played out this way. I don't know this, but it might have. That there were women that want a protector. There was a woman, Keturah, let's limit it to one who wants a protector, and she she goes, I understand the legal obligation of of your wealth you want to focus on Isaac, but let me come under your tent. Let me be your wife and just give gifts to our children and send them out. When they're of age, send them away with your blessing. And and they're not going to... It may have been that way, and there would have been many women in this ancient time who would have desired that. We don't know. 
I am not one to gloss over sin of any character in the Bible. God goes out of his way to tar almost every character in the Bible. But this is, it's gray. Some people make a a mountain out of it. Um, He certainly had a right to be married after his wife died. And it says concubines, but literally what is going on in this and the next paragraph is that the life of Abraham is being wrapped up. It says Abraham dies at 175. Just so you know, uh, Jacob and Esau would have been 15 years old. So it is not trying to do a chronology. It is wrapping up the whole life of Abraham. It wraps up all of his other children. And he did have at least one other concubine that would have been Hagar. Um, And so it can speak about he gets to the end of his life. The sons of his concubines, Abraham, gave gifts. While they were still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward toward the country. If you read that as uh, a more heinous interpretation, you're probably right. I don't know. But as the more I read about this, the more I realized this is, it's complex. Literally, they're summarizing his life. But then it goes on. These are the days of the years of Abraham. He lives 175 years um, it's saying, it's, it's dischronologizing for the sake of staying on topic of Abraham's life. It's summarizing his life. They're going to get to the funeral. And at the funeral, Isaac would have been 75 years old. Uh, and Jacob would have been 15 years old. So the narrative down in 19 and following about her barrenness after marriage was 35 years before this death. It's just, it's summarizing his life. His, uh, his primary sons, Isaac and Ishmael, are there at the funeral. They bury him in the one tiny little plot of land that he owns, the, the back 40 that he spent a fortune to buy. And then the Bible goes out of its way to summarize Ishmael and all of his life. And, and why, why would the Bible do this? We need to remember that this is being written to the Israelites as they're coming up out of Egypt and they're, they're walking through a land and there's the Midianites over here and, and the Kedarites over here and, and, and it's, it's their understanding kind of who's in our lineage, what is our relationship to them because actually the promises of God to, to Ishmael he holds as valid and the Israelites don't get to just conquer them, but they, when they pass through the land, they're supposed to pay for food and water and, and the like. And so this might not exactly seem applicable to us. It's, it's historical. It shows us that the Bible is true, but this, this would have been very useful to the Israelites coming up out of Egypt, that God is providing for them a history of the land. God cares about history. But that pretty much closes the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac, who we just got, saw get married, is almost then summarized as well. Isaac's time in this passage is pretty much two chapters long before the, the narrative entirely goes to Jacob. And it gives, so in the same way it says, the, the Toledotes kind of outline the Bible. You've got the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Abraham, and now you have the generations of Isaac. And so it's on theme. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. We're we're in verse 20 now. And Isaac is 40 years old when they took Rebekah. He is 60 when they are born. Isaac, the child of promise, surrounded by cousins that are all having 12 kids. The child that that God has given a promise that he will raise up nations from. 20 years without children. I don't know if we can, we, we get an inkling of that, because our lives are shorter, but. 
And barrenness, it still is today, but particularly back then, is just a wife just wants to delight to provide her husband with heirs, with children, with his bloodline. You see this with Rachel and Leah, just delighting that, that they're having these children for her, their husband. Maybe he'll love me more now that I've had all these children. And, and again, we see that the path that God has called his promised people to go down is it's not just in your head that you look at the path that God calls you to and you're like, it seems like the path God calls me to is harder than the other paths. There is a truth within this context to the Christian life in that the grass is greener on the other paths. It's wide. Following God is narrow. And it's hard. When people come to Jesus, you know, we, we rush, we rush to bring people into church membership. We rush to bring people to a confession of faith. And, and people want to follow Jesus. And he goes, have you really thought about this? I'm homeless. Foxes have dens, badgers have holes. He gets a crowd, and then he tells one of his most hard teachings. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he doesn't go, oh, by the way, what I mean by that is, no, he just lets it hang, and people leave except his 12. He says, following me is going to be picking up a cross. And in that walk, have it firmly fixed in your minds to profess faith. This is what we are called to, to cross-bearing. We are called to a path where we can look at all the other paths and they're easier, and the grass is greener, they just lead to hell and separation from God. And we look at the path that God has called us to, and God says, I am on this path. And it's harder, but that's where I am. And to follow Christ is to go wherever he calls me. If he is there, God, that is where I want to be. And he does this with all of his people. It is not a light thing. It is not an easy thing to follow Jesus. It was not an easy thing to follow Yahweh. Can you imagine 20 years of prayer while all your cousins are having kids? Here's encouragement. One verse, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. The Lord granted his prayer. We're going to talk about the providence of God, but the providence of God ought to bolster our prayers because we pray to a God that actually can affect things. He is not beholden to us. He's not like waiting for us so that he can do certain things. God can save. God can force, uh, make conception happen. God can heal. We worship a sovereign God. Why would you pray to a God that could not actually save the person you were praying for? We believe in an almighty, all-sovereign God, and that is why we pray. The Lord granted his prayer. She conceives blessing. Back on the hard road, verse 22. It's a hard pregnancy. Children struggled within her. 
She said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now she is praying. Beloved, when, when life is easy, how, how much do we pray? And when life is hard, oh, all of a sudden we start praying. Why would God want to make life easy for a moment for us if it means we go far from him? It's hard, and she now is praying, and the Lord answers her. Two nations are in your womb. He knows the future. He has ordained it. Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger, the other, the older, shall serve the younger. Malachi chapter 1 interprets this as saying, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Both of these verses go together. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one came out red. Adam or Adam, um, it's not Adam quite, it's just some vowels shifting. It sounds like red. He's a hairy red guy, so they name him Red Guy. His brother came out, his hand was holding Esau's heel. This is, uh, this is like calling, I hope there's no used car salesman here, but this is like calling someone a used car salesman. It's a trickster. Someone that you just expect in the course of doing business, of course they're going to kind of fudge the truth to get the deal done. That's what this means in this culture, the heel clutcher. So his name was called Jacob, Jacob. Isaac is 60 years old when they were born. They wait 60 years of prayer. God gives it to him, and it's immediately a struggle. But then the boys grow up. Esau is a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved, you know, it's funny. Um, a Jewish commentary will say of this, they'll go, he was a quiet man because he was studious. He was, um, they always, it's one of the hallmarks of Jewish commentaries. They always want to make all their characters look great. Beware of that sort of teaching. That can creep into the Christian church. We want to make all of these heroes. There is one hero, and that is Christ. Don't make heroes out of these guys. We can learn. We can learn things from them. They can do heroic things for a moment, empowered by God. And they are a shadow of the true hero, which is Christ. So Jacob's a quiet man dwelling in tents, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. Think about that. Because of his fleshly preferences. You know, it's like, okay, I have two sons. Let's say they become teenagers. One gets a job at a pizza place, and all of a sudden I love him more because he's bringing home pizza all the time. It's, it's, uh, it's not good. It's, it's worse than just saying that the parents had favorites, that he has favorites because of the appetites of his flesh. And Rebecca loved Jacob. Messy family. And you see as they get older, this mess gets worse. One of them, Jacob the trickster, was cooking stew. Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, or Red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use of that is it a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold the birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The birthright is the double portion. 
the purpose of the double portion going to the oldest son was not just favoritism, but it was actually that if you leave a widow or you leave daughters, they are the obligation of the oldest son. So if you have, if you have six kids, you portion out seven portions of inheritance, you know, all of them get one portion, the oldest gets two portion, and he has an obligation to care for his younger sisters and his uh, widowed mother. This is not an injustice. This is a, when done right, this, this is a beautiful thing. People live a long time at this point. We don't, they might be teenagers, you know. Uh, Isaac might have another hundred years of life ahead of him. You know, at the point of this, they, they might have both been 15. Abraham might still be alive. Probably not, but might. Maybe they're 20. And Isaac might have another 100 years ahead of them. So imagine having a, a, a rich father that has a $3 million wealth package that when he dies goes to his kids. Oh, that's, that amount of money is so far away as an inheritance, I don't care about it. I don't, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know, so if there's a $3 million pay package, and well, in 100 years, I might get a million or two. I don't care. You can have my extra million. I don't care. Give me it now. The New Testament makes much of this as well, this idea of trading a temporary pleasure for condemnation later or problems later. God wants His people to be a long-term thinking people. We don't just think about what's going to feel good today. We are a people that are supposed to have self-control with our appetites. As the New Testament talks about qualifications for elders, it talks about self-control. As I struggle with my weight going up and down, up and down, I think about that all the time. You should be worried when an elder cannot control his, his eating because that is an appetite of the flesh, and it's, it's one of many. Self-control matters. Now, the good news is there is no one that qualifies as an elder perfectly, ever. Jesus, that's it. And those standards are actually meant for everyone. They're all things we should aspire to be. You know, elders are held to that standard a little more strictly, but still graciously. So what do we do with this? I mean, we, we could take the little lessons about prayer and whatnot, but I, I want us to turn now to Romans chapter 9, and I want us to talk about this idea that God, while they're still in the womb, while they're still in the womb, God has a plan and a purpose, and He knows what's going to happen. God doesn't, um, you know, think about it with John the Baptist, God isn't standing at the door and knocking when He's in the womb, going, dear John the Baptist, I'd like to come in, open the… No. That illustration of I stand at the door and knock is for a church. When God wants to save someone, He can save someone. When God has a plan for someone, He is going to carry it out, and this is offensive. But let's, let's spend some time in Romans 9 to just round out our theology here. Romans chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Some people just won't believe. He has brethren Jews that have rejected Jesus and that cuts him to the core because he loves them. One of the greatest injuries we can receive is when people we love reject Jesus because we know where that goes. That's why one of John's greatest joys is knowing that his children are walking with the Lord. So he says, they, verse four, Israelites, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God entrusted all of these things to them. Verse five, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But God made promises to Israel, so he has to, he has to deal with the fact that, wait, God has made promises to Israel as a nation. What, what's gonna happen with that? Verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You know, when the church talks about the visible versus the invisible people of God, we're, we're not creating categories. And Paul here isn't creating this either. Isaiah uses this language. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, naturally, genealogically. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are according, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. How, how, do, you, how do you separate the promise versus the flesh? This is what the promise said, verse 9. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. See, see Paul is actually highlighting election not just, not just with Jacob, but beginning also then with Isaac. About this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election or choosing might continue. Not because of works, because of him who calls. God wants to build into his people's minds. What do we call it when someone is chosen not based on what they did? That's grace. God is building into the structure of the earliest stories of the Jewish people and understanding that it is God who saves, not because you did the right thing, but because God delights to save. Not based on works. in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It is God who saves. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written. So he, he quotes Genesis 25. Now he quotes Malachi 3, which is talking about Je Genesis 25. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there is a natural response. There is a natural response. A lot of people want to undermine the doctrine of election and they explain away Romans 9 in such a way that the follow-up question makes no sense. You, we have to read 1 through 13 in a way where this natural response makes sense. 
and only sovereign election would lead to someone going, what can we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is God's, Psalm 139 says, therefore we fear Him. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Some of the most biblically-minded people I know and love will here start talking about a corridor of time God knows the end from the beginning. He's not just going down a quarter of time and go, oh, that person's going to make a smart choice, so I'm going to pick them. Then it is not dependent on you that lessens the glory of God and salvation. Do not, do not, do not accept this idea of the quarter of time. It diminishes the glory of God and salvation, and it elevates yourself. Why were you chosen? You're smarter than all the rest. You were smart enough to make the right choice. God has mercy on who he has mercy. Compassion on who he has compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Not just for the saved, but for those who harden their hearts and reject God. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He is working all things together for his own glory. And actually, God is glorified both in saving and in exercising justice on those who hate him. Which, by the way, we all are apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, verse 18, so that he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. You'll say to me then, we have to read that in a way where this follow-up question makes sense. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O man? Answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory, even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only. The church is made up of many Jews at that point that have been called, but also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, these, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord, the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted 
And here is very good news. If the Lord have, of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and be like Gomorrah. Let's get some categories straight. There, there is no category of someone who goes, I hate my sin, and I love God, but I'm just not elect. That category does not exist. Beloved, if, you, if this doctrine in some weird way in your mind has caused you to doubt your own salvation and that eats you up and, and you hate your sin and have an affection for Jesus, no, you're elect. You've been saved. If you love Jesus... Praise the Lord if you have any hatred of your sin and affection for Jesus Christ. You can go thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit has moved within me. So the, the category of loving God and hating our sin and yet not being elect is simply not a category that exists. We all fall, begin in this other category. There is no one that seeks God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God justly deserving his wrath and displeasure. And out of that category, God delights. While we were still sinners, with everyone in that category, Christ dies for the ungodly that he might rescue those whom he wants to show mercy to. It starts with one category, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we worship a God that actually chooses, while we're still there, not looking down a quarter of time at future obedience, no, do not diminish God's glory. But he goes, I will send my son to die for some of those wretched sinners because I want to have some of them in my family for my own glory, to share the love that the Trinity has within itself with them, that they might be called sons of the living God. Salvation is realizing that God in your heart has done something where he transfers you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. wrote something down to say. There is no one righteous whom God does not love. There is no one righteous whom God does not love. The problem is, apart from God's love, no one becomes righteous. The gospel is that God, out of sheer grace, shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. God's gracious saving of some caused them to have an alien righteousness imputed to them, credited to them. What that means is, before God, our legal status, God accounts to us before his throne all the righteous merit of Christ. And all those whom he does that for, he has filled with the Spirit— who over time infuseth grace in us. The idea is we are saved by that imputed righteousness of Christ. I know this is heady doctrine, but it is the basis of our confidence before God. And then all those whom he has called, he sanctifies. That grace gets worked into us. This is why we read from Colossians 3. 
where Paul says, because you're with Christ, because you've been saved, because you're a new man, put on the new man. Because you are with Christ in heaven now in some way, start acting like it. That we're called to obedience, not so that we will be loved, not so that we will be blessed, but because in Christ we have been. And I want to end going back to where we started at the beginning. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, every family that's talked about in the Bible is a colossal mess. So parents, if you feel like your, your, your raising of your kids was a bit of a mess, your relationship with now is a bit of a mess, you're in good company. There's no one here that can go, mine's perfect. I did everything right. Knocked it out of the park. Read John 1 if you think you're in that category. If you say that you're without sin, you make God a liar. But look at, look at this last verse, verse 29. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Our hope for our children is in a God who actually can save and in a God who has told us that he actually listens to our prayers. Our hope is that this almighty and absolutely sovereign God, beloved, when you go into evangelism, the doctrine of election should give you great confidence because it is God that saves, not you. Your job is to proclaim you're a herald. You're not a builder. You're a herald. And when you proclaim Christ, when you proclaim His Word, in whatever situation, one-on-one, or with a group, or in a Bible study, or wherever it is that you have relationship with people out in the world, where you profess Christ, the Holy Spirit delights to powerfully move that our doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God is the very foundation of our humility? Why? Because God didn't pick you because you're awesome. You're not. I can prove it. Let's look at your family and look at mine. But it also gives us confidence that our hope is not in just working harder so that we'll be blessed, but we see that in God's blessing we have confidence to work harder to strive to disciple our children, to cling to his promises, and to call that God in his time would save. Genesis 25 might feel like like it's just these filler chapters between the high points. It's not Mount Moriah. It's not the animals being split in two. It's not Bethel. It's not the stories of them pursuing a girl working for Laban. It's not, you know, Isaac being, it's not the stories that get into the children's storybook Bibles. It's all the in-between stuff, but beloved, you need to read that because God teaches his people differently in narrative than he does in epistolary. The Apostle Paul is taking long narratives and showing you who your God is. And so as we look at this, what can we see? We see that God can graciously move in messy families. Praise the Lord. We see that our God, who is sovereign and knows the end from the beginning, is in control. Praise the Lord. And we see that our God 
listens to our prayers and delights to respond to them. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Send in prayer. Father, I pray that we would see you in your word, that we would not be discouraged as we look at our vocations or our houses or our children or our relationships that are very messy and be cast down. God, you have called us to a hard path. You have called us to pick up our crosses. And Father, we have no hope of even beginning to do that if you do not guide us, if your word is not a lamp to our feet, if your king does not rule and subdue not only his and our enemies, if the Holy Spirit does not empower us, we are hopeless and helpless. So, Father, we just praise you for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, for saving some in a just and beautiful way that you might be both just and the justifier. Father, I pray that these narratives would sink into our hearts and our minds, that as we struggle with messy families or sibling rivalries, that we would glean wisdom from them, that we wouldn't despise our own birthrights, that we wouldn't um, be tricksters in trying to, in an illicit way, get blessing. Help us to learn from it. But God, as we walk with you, help us to know always that we obey you because you love us. We never have to earn it. God, I pray now if there is anyone here who has never just submitted their souls to you for eternity, that in seeing you in your word, they would be brought low and they might cry out to you in faith because your Holy Spirit delights to convince and convert sinners. Help us, Father, this week to glorify you in all that we do. Give us a peace that truly passes understanding because you, our God, are a sovereign God and so worthy of praise. Help us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.